Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Tuesday, February the 7th, 2023. Uh, five days away from Lincoln's birthday, and then a few more days from President's Day. Lots of history this month. And Joe Biden may be making history tonight in his State of the Union address. Uh, a lot of excitement about that, some foreboding, both on the left and the right. Uh, according to the New York Times, which we tend to rely on, um, Biden will promote his path for taxing the rich and aiding the needy. I wonder if he'll talk about the American Revolution or continuing in that revolutionary tradition. We're doing a show today about uh, that very revolution, the American Revolution, the rebellion against uh, the British colonialists and the American Revolutionary War with my guest, Bob Thompson, who works, his day job is for the Washington Post, but uh, he's also a guy who gets on the road and uh, has spent his life thinking about history, jokes in his bio that he spent about four days in grad school uh, doing history, and the rest of his life he's been trying to be historian. His latest book, it's out today, Revolutionary Road, Searching for the War that Made American Independent, and all the places it could have gone terribly wrong. And he's joining us from Washington, D.C., the heart now of the American Revolution. Bob, welcome. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you. So uh, your, uh, your, your last book uh, was on uh, Davy Crockett. Why this book? What are you trying to do with Revolutionary Roads? Well, what I wanted to do was uh, classically um, too much. I wanted to tell the whole story of the Revolutionary War. And because I'm a reporter, although I'm no longer at the Washington Post, I was at the Washington Post for many years, uh, I know how to go out and talk to people and travel and do that kind of thing, and not so much going into archives. So what I wanted to do was tell the story of the Revolutionary War by going to places where important things happened and talking to people who know a lot more about them than I did when I started out. Uh, that was the goal. Bob, when I, and maybe it's because I'm English, but when I think of uh, the quote-unquote American Revolution, it doesn't seem very revolutionary to me, certainly when you compare it to the French Revolution or the Chinese Revolution or the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, when you went out on the road looking for this revolution, did it seem to you to be revolutionary? Words are supposed to mean something. Was there really an American Revolution? Well, yes. But you're absolutely right that it was not like those other revolutions. The, the, what the rebels were trying to do, that's what the British called them, and so do I a lot of the time, what they were trying to do was to separate from their colonial masters uh, who had irritated them. And so that was what they were trying to do. They were not trying to change their entire social system. In fact, they would have rather gone back to... Um, the way they were when the British were leaving them alone. Um, but I should say that it's called the American Revolutionary War here. It's my impression that most people in 
England, Britain, uh, don't think about it very much because it was a it was a little bit of a blip on the screen considering what else was going on at that time. Yeah, it was an awful blip. Um, it was the worst thing that probably happened in Britain <laughs> until 1950 when America beat uh, England in the World Cup in Brazil, which was even more of a humiliation. Uh -oh. um, so, so tell me about the, uh, the, the, the story. What did you do? You went out on the road. Uh, you look a bit like a Bob Thompson or what one would expect of a Bob Thompson. Do you have an old pickup truck, Bob? Uh, no, no. I went out on the road in one of those um, really awful, uh, in retrospect, um, VWs with the, with the, uh, where they had uh, failed to perform their what they said they were doing about um, the environment. Sorry, I'm not coming up with that. But um, anyway, so it, it was wasn't a, an EV. It was a gas guzzler. Uh, so it, you it, polluted America while you were looking for the revolutionary yes, roads. Yes, I did, but not as much as I could have. But I did. I drove around in this little car and started where the war started, just because. Uh, that was a good place to start, but I drove back and forth all over the place. And I, I tell the story more or less chronologically, but that's not how I drove it. So, Bob, not everyone will be familiar with this war. Uh, American kids don't seem to learn much history. And as you say, in, certainly in Britain, it's not a war that's particularly popular. Give us some background. Give us some dates, some numbers. Tell us a little bit about the pre-colonial history of America. So people understand that it wasn't all of America um, rebelling. I'm in California right now. That was just uh, an imaginary piece of the future of America. So, so what was the situation? Well, the colonies uh, were on the Eastern seaboard and um, more or less where they are now. Uh, there were not that many people in them. Um, I made a deliberate choice not to try and do all of the politics of the revolution. So there's a lot I didn't know about or don't know about that. But the things start to heat up in the 1770s. And uh, in the book, I tell the story of a thing called the powder alarm, which occurred in 1774 in and around Boston. And the powder alarm was, it was kind of a, of a warm up for what eventually happened at Lexington Concord. What American adults and kids know about the war right now is not a, not a lot. There's a lot more work been done on the politics of it, but the war, people tend to think it started in Lexington Concord. Something happened on Bunker Hill, which is in Boston. Uh, then, you know, George Washington crossed the Delaware and then there was a bad winter at Valley Forge, and then we went to Yorktown and won the war. So, um, my, yeah, my, my understanding, and uh, I certainly am, am not really particularly knowledgeable, is it? It was a sporadic, disorganized war. It was the opposite of a modern war. It happened. It stopped. It started up again. Is that fair? Uh, some of it, yes. Um, it, it was pretty steady for the first three years, although they tended not to fight in the winter, you know, uh, but uh, it, it, in the- Well, given, was, given New England winters, yeah. I'm not surprised. Yeah, 
but but up until 1778, there was a pretty steady in in for that time it was steady warfare. Um, the part where it kind of stalled came in the couple of years after that, where the French came into the war, which was an extremely important date, which I should mention. And, uh, and they came in and then it became a world war at that point. And England and France were much more interested in um, protecting each other's Caribbean holdings, for instance, and other things than they were about what was happening in the American colonies. So the British sent some troops away and there was a little, you know, interregnum. And then the British decided, well, we weren't doing so well up in the North, so let's go down to the South where there are theoretically more loyalists. And that's the part of the war that, unless you happen to live in the South, and even if you do, you're not always paying attention. So um, would it be fair to say, Bob, that Revolutionary Roads reads a lot more like Hunter Thompson than E.P. Thompson? Oh, my goodness. Um, I'm honored to be compared to both of those gentlemen. Um, I'm but in terms of your goals, you weren't, you weren't doing an E.P. Thompson. You were doing a Hunter Thompson. Uh, yes. Um, I, I was moving around and trying to tell a story. I was trying very hard to make the story accurate, uh, and I had a lot of help from people doing that. But uh, it's not, uh, it's not a, an academic history. It's a history with color. And yes. feeling. I, I love your description of yourself. I assume you wrote it in your bio and for your other book, your Davy Crockett book, when you said Bob Thompson dropped out of graduate school in American history after just three weeks and has been trying to make up for it ever since. What is it about American history that inspires you so much? Clearly, this was a passion project. Right. It's, it's partly it's not just American history, but a lot of it is American history. I, I'm just really interested in it. I have been since I was eight years old. I grew up 10 miles away from Lexington and Concord. Um, but it turned out that my metabolism is much better suited to journalism, where you move faster and do things uh, more rapidly. Um, and so that's what I ended up doing. But I did a lot of history-related um, articles and at the post when I was there and edited them. Do you think, Bob, that um, we, we, we contemporize, contemporize history too much these days, too many histories associated with discrimination and, and sexism and many of the things that obsess us these days and 250 years ago, they simply weren't relevant? I would not say that, actually. I mean, maybe there's maybe there's a change in the balance, but I think those things are worth doing. What I think we, this is a change from what you asked, but what I think we do way too much of is uh, from one side or the other say, we say, well, the founding fathers would have thought this or the founding fathers would have done that. And that kind of analogy is, is, is very, very dangerous and, uh, in the sense of it's almost always wrong. Are there founding fathers? I mean, you're in Washington, D.C., of course, named after George Washington. Um, how, how do the quote-unquote founding fathers come out of the Revolutionary War, or at least in terms of the Revolutionary Roads, your book? Well, most of the, most of the founding fathers were not military. Um, Washington, of course, is the principal exception to that. Um, 
And he comes out in complex ways. Um, he was a really pretty terrible battlefield general. Because some <laughs> people don't know. Uh, well, the British were. I mean, they, we, it, was a, it was a war of incompetence. The British weren't, weren't any better. Well, I, in general, no, they weren't. But um, he was, however, a, an excellent leader and an excellent politician, uh, which is what made him a good president. And you can't lead an army in the middle of what I will continue to call a revolution uh, if you don't have some political instincts. And he had a, a much more so than most of the people who in the middle of the war tried to make him go away. This was a, a pre-general mobilization war, the opposite of, I don't know, the first or the second world war, total wars. Could one live in the colonies and essentially avoid the war? How ubiquitous was it? Uh, there's a, a not necessarily accurate, but a useful um, set of numbers. I think it's from John Adams who said a third of the people were for independence, a third of the people were against independence, and a third of them just wanted to make it through and keep on living and doing what they're doing. I think that's roughly roughly accurate. Uh, what's left out of that equation is the places predominantly the South, also upstate New York and New Jersey, uh, in the, 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 it was a civil war. And, and the, the, the war in the South was vicious and uh, smaller scale than the, than the civil war we know about, but it was, it was not just armies on the battlefield. So in, in that way, history was if not repeating itself, setting itself up for a, an even more brutal civil war uh, in, in the century following. I, I think that's correct. And the thing I would add to that is that one of the elements of the revolution that I'm talking about, which is, which is not discussed enough, is its effect on African-Americans, most of whom in the South, at least, were enslaved, and they ran to the British when they could. Not all of them. It's not surprising. No, it's not surprising. It didn't always. Or it, it frequently ended poorly. That when you when you get a lot of people together and they haven't been in crowds like that before, they tend to be very uh, uh, susceptible to disease. Uh, but that mass attempt to free themselves was really the biggest slave rebellion ever before the, before the uh, Civil War. It was, it was a, a, a massive thing compared to most of the small slave rebellions that we do know something about. I know you write about the Marbleheaders, um, which was a, uh, a regiment of mixed white and, and black soldiers. Were there many of those in the Revolutionary War or the, were, were, were African-Americans, black Americans, uh, presumably most of them enslaved Americans, did they not really participate, uh, certainly on the, the rebel side? Uh, they did participate. And the, the difference between the, the rebel and British side in terms of participation in the army is that if you were in the North, you could enlist. 
Washington tried to prevent this for a while, but then he gave up and changed his mind. So maybe 5% of the people who fought in the, in the, uh, on the American side uh, in the, in the uh, revolution were African-American. That number sometimes gets conf confused because there are Native Americans in some of those numbers also. But, uh, and all men, were there any women involved? Uh, women were involved in the armies and that a lot of them could not, when their, their, their husbands were poor and when they enlisted, they couldn't survive on their own. So they followed the armies. Uh, there were a few who fought um, in, in disguise and there are, there are legendary women, um, most notably Molly Pitcher, which is not a real name, uh, who found themselves helping out on the battlefield, but the, the percentages was, were very low. So you cover a lot of the battles, which are relatively small, the, the Battle of Bunker Hill, the Battle of King's Mountain, Battle of, even Battle of Long Island, which is also known as the Battle of Brooklyn, the Battle of Trenton. Some of it's almost, at least the names of it today seem slightly comical. Um, which of these battles were the most critical? I mean, given that it was a small war and it took place over a long period and it was slightly chaotic, was there a particular battle, Bob, that we need to understand to think that captures the spirit of this war or makes sense of its outcome? Well, all of the ones you just mentioned were important, and I can't talk about them all. Bunker Hill was a terrible battle for the British who technically won it because they got to the top, but in the process they lost half of their, of their attackers killed or wounded and it changed the way they fought the war. They tried never to do that again. Um, and the battle that I think is the most revealing is one that you and most other people have never heard of, which is not the Battle of Trenton, where Washington crosses the Delaware and wins a, a very necessary victory because things were very bleak. But uh, there was a second Battle of Trenton eight days later. And because the British... Who so this was uh, in January 1777. That's correct. Um, and... So eight days after the Washington wins the first Battle of Trenton, which was against the Hessians, the British come charging down from, from New York and eventually from Princeton to take him out. They, they, they say, okay, this, this was bad. We, we need to put an end to this. And if, the, if Washington's army had not won the second Battle of Trenton and escaped from where they were almost trapped to go up and fight at Princeton, then the war would have been over. And the second battle, it's my favorite battle and I can't, I can't do all the details for you, but nobody knows about it. And, and the thing that's important about that is that it could have ended the war. And that comes back to your, uh, to your idea uh, uh, in the book about uh, all the places it could have gone terribly wrong, terribly wrong, of course, from the, rebels point of view when you look back at it um how how lucky were the rebels 
and how many places could it have gone terribly wrong and and how close did it go to going terribly wrong uh i lost count but one of the things that nobody thinks about in terms of how the war could have ended is that it did not have to end with one side or another fully winning and the in the late stages of the war, the French were getting kind of sick of it because they weren't seeing return on their investment. And so there really was probably only one more campaign season that, that could happen. And if the European powers, France and England, but some other um, states were poking their, their fingers in and, and trying to arrange Spain this. Spain as well. Yeah, they could have, they could have enforced a peace agreement where um, basically things, territory would have been divided just as it was when the peace agreement was instituted. And I refer to it as a, I don't know whether this is a British game, but I refer to it as a kind of freeze tag. It's a, it's a children's game where all of a sudden you have to freeze and everything stops where it is. And if that had happened in 1781, most of the South, New York City, Long Island, part of Northern New England would have remained with the British as colonies, plus everything on the west of the Appalachian Mountains, all the way out to the Mississippi, would also have remained with the British, which it did not in the, in the, in the real war. So that, that's, a, that's a thing that could easily have happened. And, and we don't, we don't think about that. But isn't the actual outcome, wasn't that in the long term inevitable, that the British didn't have the resources or the interest or the commitment to maintain uh, a presence in North America? No, I think it's, I think it, it's not inevitable. It, it could have been Canada. You know, they could, have, they could have won the war and lost interest gradually in managing colonies and, and eventually we would have, I mean, we, were, we wouldn't be colonies today, but they did lose interest because they were fighting the French elsewhere. And so I just wouldn't use the word inevitable because if a couple more things had gone wrong and if a whole series of things that happened to allow the French fleet to get to Yorktown at the time when a stupid British general had put himself there, it, it, it things would have been very different. Speaking of stupid British generals, I know you covered General John Burgoyne. Um, how, how stupid were, uh, another one you, you cover is uh, um, Banastri Tarleton, a British general. How stupid were the British generals? I mean, how dumb, They've, they have a history, Britain, of having dumb generals. I mean, a charge of the Light Brigade, First World War, Oh Lord! Were they um, were they more stupid than than normal? No, I don't think so. And and it's it's a mistake for me to call them all stupid. Uh, the least stupid or smartest British general was Henry Clinton, who was not very popular with his peers or his superiors, but he knew what he was doing. Uh, the Burgoyne campaign. It was Burgoyne's idea, and he mucked it up, but he had a lot of help doing that. 
both from his uh, civilian uh, controllers in, in England who really didn't know what they were doing and they were 3,000 miles away, so how could they? But also General Howe, who was the commander in chief at that time, just said, okay, that's a nice plan. You, you go do that. I'm gonna go take Philadelphia. And that did not end well. And what about Tarleton? Tarleton's a much better, he, he didn't make general until after the war, but he's a, he's a much better uh, uh, commander than a lot, of, a lot of the British were. He was, he was terribly effective. He was hated uh, by his opponents, sometimes for good reason, but also for reasons of, of propaganda, um, which worked on both sides. But Tar Tarleton was was a, a uh, he's a man who lost a very important small battle, but he was a, he was a good leader of, of his men. And how miserable was it for the the soldiers in the the colonial army? Very miserable. Uh, miserable more from disease and from the inability of the colonial um, powers that be such as they were to feed them or clothe them, uh, they, they were, they, it was a very tough war. And the things they went through um, and came out of and continued to fight, they deserve an enormous amount of credit. Credit for what? Credit for sticking in for I didn't have in. much choice. I mean, they would have been presumably executed had they uh, chosen. No, they, they could have. I mean, lots of them did desert, and you can't chase everybody down and execute them. Uh, the, the enlistment system changed in the partway through the war, where they originally they were relying a lot more on volunteers short term, and they, they ended up people enlisted for a year or two. Well, finally, Bob, um, how would you like this war to be remembered and taught in American schools? Presumably not too heroically, but I'm also guessing that you would like people to be reminded of their origins in political and military and cultural terms. So, so how, how should the Revolutionary War be, be taught and treated, especially for kids who don't know much history? First of all, I think they should be uh, they should be taught a little bit about what actually happened, which doesn't happen. <laughs> going with the, that should go without saying, shouldn't it? It should, but it, it can't. Um, but I would also strongly like them to understand that it was not something inevitable that history proceeded as the way it did. It absolutely was not, and that's something that's as true today as it was then. Things don't happen because they had to happen, but that's what we think in hindsight. And the war could, could have left us in a very different position.